Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Let's turn our attention to inflation still running red hot in this country. 6.8% was the year-over-year increase in the Consumer Price Index for the month of April. And it's not just making consumers nervous. Uh, Investors uh, certainly seem on edge. It was a rough day on the stock market with some declines in the U.S. spilling over into this country on the TSX. But a lot of it driven by uh, some concern with two big retailers, Walmart and Target. Uh, Target shares took a big tumble. Uh, after the company said its profits was uh, profit was cut in half because of higher costs and supply chain issues. Walmart shares were down for similar reasons. They were warning of lower profits still to come because of higher transportation costs and supply chain issues. And that's part of the problem right now. So, uh, you know, you've seen the stock markets tumble. There's some, some unease, I suppose, about what lies ahead. And it's something the Bank of Canada's got to factor in. If it believes the economy is strong enough to withstand interest rate hikes, that's how it's going to respond to inflation, as it's already done. But if there's concern about an economic slowdown, well, that raises all kinds of questions. 6.8%, as mentioned, was the year-over-year increase, the consumer price index rate for April. So it's the highest numbers we've seen in decades. Joining us to talk a bit more about what's driving it what we're likely to see in the weeks and months ahead and what the options are at this point in, in responding to all of this. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Trevor Toon, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I mean, in terms of the number, I mean, obviously up a bit from March, but I don't know, was it all surprising, first of all? So I think what might be surprising is not that the headline rate of inflation is still as high as it is. I think you know that was very much expected and will likely remain for at least a few more months to come. Mm-hmm. But it does look like inflation is broadening. The number of products that are seeing their prices increase above that 1% to 3% range is now 75% of them. So three out of four items tracked by StatCan had more than a 3% rate of inflation. And almost all of the food categories, about four dozen different categories, are seeing price increases above 3%. So it is becoming a lot more broad-based than it was before. That's really my takeaway from the data from today. Well, it's interesting. Obviously, energy prices have been a big driver of inflation. But we look at at April, you know, gas prices were a a bit lower in April. Yeah, exactly. Just slightly. So gasoline did ease off in terms of how much it contributed to headline inflation in April. Uh, but that was more than offset by the increases in prices of items at the grocery store, uh, with the exception, though, of Alberta, where gasoline uh, prices fell a little bit because of crude oil prices, but also the suspension of the provincial gasoline tax. Mm-hmm. That, was a, that was a big reduction that shaved about 0.4 to 0.5 percentage points off of Alberta's inflation. And so we came in at 6.3 compared okay. to 6.8 nationally. Very interesting. So what's still driving all of this? Obviously, we've seen, you know, the Bank of Canada start to respond and, and first of all, tightening up some of its policy, now raising interest rates. We saw, you know, the the federal government in its most recent budget uh, reining in at least some of that big pandemic spending. Yet inflation hasn't cooled off. So why is that? Well, it does take time for a lot of these measures to work their way through the economy. You know, roughly speaking, monetary policy changes like these interest rate moves of the Bank of Canada 
can take anywhere from a year to a year and a half to fully work their way through the economy. And so we shouldn't anticipate that there will be kind of immediate changes in these patterns, at least over the the short term. But there there is some really evidence though that the interest rate increases even just the, the last couple might be starting to have an important effect on real estate markets. Yeah. And shelter's important. Nationally that's adding about two point two percentage points, just shelter alone to the overall inflation rate out of the six point eight. And so in some markets we are starting to see um, some modest declines. Uh, in-home prices. And so if they give back some of the gains that they saw over the past year, then once we get later into this year, then it might be that homeowner costs and shelter more generally starts to pull down uh, the rate of inflation, something closer to normal. Well, and uh, yeah, that, that's one area where certainly, you know, the rate increase can have an immediate impact. I mean, there's a lot of things outside of our control. You know, we've had some mm-hmm. some big issues in China where, you know, Shanghai, such an important industrial city, has been basically under lockdown for weeks. That's caused all kinds of supply chain issues, all sorts of products delayed and, and being shipped. So the Bank of Canada can't control that. Interest rates don't affect, you know, the ports in, in Shanghai, right? Yeah, exactly. And and the shutdowns in China, aside, in addition to that, consumers here and in the United States and elsewhere are just buying a lot more stuff. Like the spending on physical goods is much higher now than prior to the beginning of the pandemic. And our spending on services is lower. And so that shift means that there's more containers being used. There's more going through our ports. The Port of Vancouver, significantly higher volumes there. And interest rate moves don't create additional shipping capacity. And so the uh, the effect of those supply chain issues is, is something outside the Bank of Canada's uh, really direct control. And it's pretty important in some areas. Like if you look at the purchase of new vehicles, mm-hmm. um, so there's longer waiting lists than uh, was the case before. And prices are higher for new vehicles, adding alone just that new vehicles, about half a point through the national inflation rate of 6.8. Wow. Well, in terms of what governments can do, because I, I suppose there's some ways that governments could compound the problem if, you know, if governments decide, well, cars cost too much, let's give people some, you know, money specifically to buy a new car, you maybe end up fueling demand and, and yeah. that, that could drive the price even higher. So governments need to be careful, you know, on the unintended consequences, but are some reasonable steps right now that governments could look at? You're right, governments do need to be careful. I think with housing, we see that constantly, where new measures to subsidize uh, the demand uh, side of the market, in particular for new buyers, might be a factor pushing home prices uh, higher. Uh, In in Alberta, uh, some point to vehicle insurance uh, rates. That's uh, something that has risen, and that is contributing to higher rates of uh, overall inflation here, maybe about 0.1%. Uh, percentage points uh, or so. But what governments can do, I think, well, you saw Alberta uh, suspending temporarily its gasoline tax. And because that is the single largest contributing item to overall inflation, you know, that did measurably move the needle in April. And so things, uh, measures of, of that type, then also just supporting families who may have special challenges or particular challenges coping with suddenly higher prices. So income transfers, like the rebate many of us will see on our electricity bills coming up. So other things of that nature to provide additional cash to not everyone, but the households uh, in need, because how much these 
price increases um, hits kind of depends on what your income level is and then the stuff, the type of stuff that you buy. Now, as it pertains to the economy, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the stock markets have had some some recent days uh, here where where they, they've not been good days. So the stock market's yeah, been a little rattled as of late, right? Today in particular, um, I, I don't know if that necessarily portends any kind of an economic slowdown, but you know, that becomes an additional factor in all of this. So the For Bank sure. of Canada believes the economy's humming along, then then they're going to be comfortable raising interest rates. But if there's concern about slowdown, how does that affect the inflation conversation? Yeah, I, I think that is an important uh, thing to consider right now. Stock prices in general reflect our expectations of future profitability of right. these corporations. And so if we think that there's going to be you know, a slowdown in the pace of recovery or, or some even fear recession, then yeah, stock prices will naturally fall. And so I think that's part of what you're seeing in the markets is concern about future economic prospects. And that is absolutely something that the bank needs to be concerned about because normally it would need to respond to a recession or weakness with interest rate reductions. And there's, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of scope or room to reduce interest rates or stimulate economic activity because it's used up a lot of firepower through the pandemic that we haven't yet kind of normalized from. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty now. Uh, so fear and and the unknown is also part of what's driving markets. And I think, uh, well, personally, I think we can't say uh, whether a recession coming or what what it might look like or what the spark might be. We kind of just have to wait and see because there's so many just unpredictable, fundamentally unpredictable factors right now. Right, and I you know, with that uncertainty and that unease, you know, it, it also leads to some overheated debate, overheated rhetoric, you know, you had a piece uh, you wrote for the Calgary Herald, I think it was last week, you know, looking at the, the situation as it is, but also urging a, a more restrained and sensible conversation around this issue. Are we seeing any signs of that? Is that even possible right now? <laughs> signs of a reasonable conversation about inflation? <laughs> uh, not that I've seen, unfortunately. And, and, and maybe now, you know, it's, it's a period of heightened um, it's political dynamics here in the province. Of course, the uh, uncertainty there facing the premier later even today that we'll we'll find out more the conservative leadership rates or things like that uh so i think that really sucks up a lot of the the oxygen on on this issue unfortunately but it does distract us i think from policies that might make a real difference um you know such as rolling out things to target support to those who need it or indexing certain income support programs such as disability payments and in Alberta are really thinking hard about what are the actual drivers of inflation that we can control and what are the ones that we cannot and focus on the former rather than the latter. Well, we'll leave it there. Trevor, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You bet. My All pleasure. Uh, Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research uh, Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the U of C. Uh, so his thoughts on, you know, where we're at, what this all portends and, you know, what options governments have at their disposal right now either in terms of trying to to affect the inflation rate or at least finding ways of helping consumers deal with all of this. So there are ways in which governments can help consumers with the cost of living overall. And maybe more of that should be on the table, right? The gasoline tax issue in Alberta was a good example of that. It doesn't appear as though it really significantly defected uh, demand one way or the other, but it did provide some relief to consumers. How do we build on that?
Welcome back. Rob Ridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. We'll get back to some of your phone calls. A lot going on here, obviously, this afternoon. Now, I want to look ahead to a week from today. Next Wednesday, May 25th, special event uh, as part of WordFest happening at the Memorial Park Library. Uh, first-time author, uh, Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud is going to be in town uh, for a WordFest event to talk about his new book. It's called Son of Elsewhere. A memoir in pieces. Now, Elamine, well known as a writer, a podcast host, a pop culture pundit, and this book tells his own story, his own journey, a story and a journey that is unique, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of Canadians who can relate to it. A journey of coming to Canada, a journey of, of finding that identity in this country. The book is mentioned called Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, and joining us on the line to talk about the book and, of course, the event next week, Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud joining us here this afternoon. Elamine, congratulations on the book, and uh, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, man. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, it's interesting when you're, you're telling your own story. I mean, you know, you, you work as a storyteller. You know what's involved in that. But, uh, you know, this is obviously deeply personal at some level, and, you know, there's, there's joy, there's sadness, there's all of that in this book. Just your own thought process, first of all, on, on what led you down this path, why you wanted to, to share this story. Uh, for sure. So we sort of all began um, probably about uh, five years ago or so when this whole process began for me. I sort of wanted to revisit the first few years that I spent in Canada. Now, I came um, as a 12-year-old to this country um, about 22 years ago. And I came to a town called Kingston, Ontario. It mm-hmm. is not a particularly diverse town. Um, and as a result, I sort of, you know, have all these memories of putting a bunch of my identities on the shelf because they were just not serving me. And I'm talking here about like my blackness, about my immigrantness, about my Muslimness, because at the time, uh, as a 12 year old, which is a natural sort of 12 year old urge, I just wanted to blend in. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. want to sort of, you know, draw attention to the ways that I was different from everybody else. And um, I think I <laughs> did a lot of things to blend in. I, for a period of time, I started calling myself Stan. Um, you know, I was proud of being called an Oreo, which is sort of a term that some people use to describe someone who's, quote, black on the outside, white on the outside. So, right. you know, I, I revisited a lot of these memories with a lot of cringing. And I wanted to go back to those identities and almost apologize, you know, for mm-hmm. the ways that I thought about them, for the ways that I categorized them and put them on the shelf. And this book is uh, an attempt at that apology. Well, look, I mean, from Khartoum to Kingston is is quite a transition, obviously, and, and yeah. you know, that's going to be difficult for anybody, let alone a 12-year-old kid. Um, the circumstances in which you came to Canada, so, I mean, there were tumultuous times, obviously, in Sudan in the late 90s, uh, but, I mean, at the same time, you know, you were not necessarily in a, an affluent situation, but I guess in, in that context, relatively middle class, is that fair to say? In Sudan, yeah, I yeah. would say that I, we were sort of squarely in the middle class um, that's how we were able to afford to be able to get out in the first place. Right. Um, you know, not everybody sort of makes it out of Sudan. Um, of course, we moved here, and those circumstances kind of changed rapidly. But uh, that is one of the transitions that you make. Um, that you know, a lot of immigrants report making, um, leaving their country where they have a relatively comfortable life, and then coming to Canada and finding that the the, the pool of opportunities you know kind of shrinks. Um, my family sort of found itself in a very similar situation. And for you, you know, it's not just about getting used to life in a new country, but as you mentioned, it's about identity and things that become relevant that, that previously really weren't, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, for, say, for example, blackness. Um, you know, I write in the book that I basically landed in Canada and became black. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was born around a bunch of people who have the same skin color as me. I never had to think about my skin color or its meaning. Um, and, you know, there were some, the, the, the folks who are darker skinned um, in Sudan, um, there is quite a bit of racism against those folks. Um, but for us, like, we were the people who, quote, passed, if you will. Like, for, you know, race was, like, not sort of a major consideration for us. And then we moved here, um, and suddenly race is a part of my story. Um, blackness is a part of my story, and I sort of had to come very quickly to understand what that means, um, understand its history, understand where to look for to find um, examples of Canadian blackness and what that even means. Um, so something that had very little meaning for me suddenly had the most meaning after I moved here. Right. And I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible not to notice. I I mean, and I'm not trying to suggest Kingston's an intolerant town, but we'd be naive to think that, you know, there's not intolerance, you know, that that exists in this country. Obviously there is. So, I mean, for you, there's just the obvious, what you see and notice on a daily basis, but there's also the experience of how you go through life and go through day to day with this new reality? How did that shape you? I mean, I think one significant thing is that I was suddenly thinking about my skin color because it meant something to other people. And I'm not even saying that it meant something bad to other people. It just said it had a meaning to other people. There were sort of expectations of what a black person, you know, how a black person behaves and by that. I mean, like certain cultural tastes and aesthetics. Um, you know, I grew up in a relatively conservative Muslim home, which meant that, like, I really ran away from hip hop because it really had nothing for me. Um, and I was, <laughs> I think the word is terrified of it at the start. Um, and, and, and then sort of learning suddenly that, like, my skin color carries with it implications for other people. Um, naturally means you get curious about those expectations, whether you sort of reject them out of hand right away um, or say, okay, let me understand and like, kind of play with those expectations. For me, um, in Kingston, I was not tempted to play with those expectations. I was tempted to sort of um, completely try to, you know, bypass them. And, and that part of doing that is trying to pretend like my skin color didn't exist, trying to pretend like my immigrant identity or my Muslim identity basically didn't exist for about a decade or so. Um, until And it's not until much, much later that I'm like, oh, I had to do a lot of twisting in order to fit myself into this box. And now let's try to go back and understand that twisting. Well, I mean, do you think that there was a different way to do it? I mean, the, the desire to fit in is understandable. The desire to, you know, come here and, and have a fun life, have a happy life, you know, just be a normal teenager in Canada. But also having to worry about all of that. Can, can you do both? Can you be comfortable in your identity in this new situation and still fit in? I think so. I think you can certainly do that. It depends on the age that you come, right? right. Um, I think if I'd arrived a little bit earlier, um, you know, memories of Sudan would have been a bit more faint. I probably would have had a bit of an easier time um, blending in. Sure, a part of my history would be that I'm from somewhere else, but, you know, um, it would be sort of a distant memory. If I'd come a little bit later, I would sort of have probably a more established, more firm um, sort of footing when it comes to Sudan itself. Um, but coming in, coming at 12 is like, that's an age when you're uncertain about everything, um, let alone, you know, two different homelands and which one really is home. 
And so I think like it is absolutely possible. I think I just kind of happen to come in in that one window of time where it gets really complicated because you're trying to um, hold on to the memories that you just arrived with because like you can't ignore them. You've had 12 years of memories, but also you're, you know, I'm 12. So I'm trying to um, formulate a plan to, to blend in as much as possible and not draw attention to myself if I don't have to. You call the book Son of Elsewhere, and that word elsewhere seems like it's got a lot of weight, like it's got a lot of meaning to it, uh, because there's a lot of Canadians, I I think, who can relate to that. You know, you're you're from somewhere else. So not only do you have the identity as as a black man in Canada, or a black teen in Canada, you're from somewhere else, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, you're a Muslim background, just the fact that you're from a country that Canadians don't really know or understand, that, that all comes with it, too. So talk about what's entailed in, in that word elsewhere to you. Well, what I was trying to do with um, this concept of elsewhere is sort of balance the idea of there are some of us who live at the intersection where both of the identities, a once home and a now home, are kind of constantly crashing into each other, right? Like, right. The, like the idea that like neither one of them is actually like, it's, this is not settled in any kind of way. Um, I've been in Canada for 22 years, but there is so much of me that is still in Sudan um, that so much of my life in Canada is spent trying to like, you know, remember, trying to maintain um, the relationships that I have with Sudan, with the people that are in Sudan, with my family who are in Sudan, um, but also maintain the ways, like, you know, the values um, of, of, of Sudanese life, while also at the same time trying to balance the fact that I live here now um, and this is home. And it's it's the idea that neither one of them really is home. So which one is home? And, and, and I was sort of trying to make the case that whatever space is in the middle, I think it's, you know, it's graspable, it's understandable as its own separate thing, as this elsewhere. And it's there you're allowed to live. You're allowed to sort of claim this as your home. I think that is, um, I, you know, I wanted to give my, myself permission to say living in between is a good place to be. Part of your journey, right? I mean, part of this story, you come to, to Canada as a 12-year-old in 1999, you know, you're, you're adjusting to life here and, you know, figuring yourself out as well. Yeah. And two years later, you know, a seismic event occurs. So how did 9-11 affect you as, a, I guess, what, a 14-year-old in 2001? Yeah. Uh, you know, I really remember quite vividly the very first Eid um, after 9-11, going to the mosque for the very first Eid after 9-11 and noticing that there were two police cars stationed outside the mosque and kind of having for the first time this thought, this question of, are they here to protect us or are they here for us? Are they here because, you know, they're afraid of us? Um, and, and and that feeling doesn't really leave you. That feeling of like, not, you know, it probably didn't help that the police officers who were present that day um were never, you know, you can never see them. I don't know where they were, um, but they sort of remain invisible. So as a result, there was just sort of this like reigning kind of sense of surveillance, and you're not really sure whether the surveillance is meant to be for your protection um, or meant to be um, against you. And 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 you know, that's not something that um, that's a reality that I think a lot of Muslim people live with to this day. Um, and for me, that was my introduction to it. My introduction to it was the very first Eid, the big celebratory occasion. Um, and then you show up, um, to Eid. Um, I think it was like maybe three months, two or three months after 9-11. Um, and, uh, you get this, you know, this broader sense that there is a threat somewhere and you're not sure if you're the threat or if you're being protected from the threat. 
That's the thing, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter how many times a day you pray or whether or not you, you have a drink of alcohol. Like, it's, it's a part of who you are. I mean, it's a part, you know, Muslim is, yeah. there's a culture to it as much as, as it's a religion, right? I mean, it's probably a larger part of the culture, yeah, yeah for sure. So it's, it's, it's not really something you, you would want to separate yourself from, obviously, but there's really no way to separate yourself from it. I mean, it's a part of who you are, and, and this, this affected you. Well, I certainly, I certainly tried, you know, I certainly tried to talk about my Muslimness um, and my Muslim background as little as possible. Um, having said that, you know, I have a name like Alameen Abdul Mahmoud, which meant that, like, you know, even my name kind of gestures towards being Muslim, um, which is why for some time, you know, I find myself adapting um, a name like Stan, which was given to me by like a classmate and I was like, sure, this is it. And then I sort of, for literally for years, um, I introduced myself as Stan. I think that's, you know, I look back at that period of time um, with quite a bit of, uh, I guess, like surprise that I was willing to go that far to protect myself as much as possible. And, yet, you know, at the same time, too, obviously, living here has shaped you in a lot of ways. And, you know, you, you talk about, you know, your fondness for like pro wrestling, for example, or, or you know, heavy metal music. And, yeah. you know, here you are, you know, I mean, you're a pop culture uh, writer for, for BuzzFeed. So, you know, I mean, obviously, being here has, has shaped you as, as well. And, I mean, do you often think about what life would be like if you'd stayed in, in Sudan and, and how you'd be the same, how you'd be different? Oh, all the time. I certainly would, you know, think I would be a very different person. Um, I, when we talk about things like pro wrestling or metal music, things that shape me in that way, um, they, I think it's important to note that, like, I was trying to basically trying to grab it as scraps to of right. pop culture ideas to understand myself and understand the place that I just landed. And in the process, create an identity out of those. And so, you know, um, yeah, I'm a pop culture, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a culture writer now. And part of my job is to look at pop culture. But it also means that, like, I think I take pop culture a little bit more seriously than a lot of other people, in part because when I was growing up, pop culture was the thing that I used to create an identity around me. I sort of used all of those um, things around me, whether it's the radio or television or things like wrestling, um, to connect with other people. And so for me, like, it's never just as um, superficial as the thing that I'm consuming, but the ways that that thing could sort of be a bridge between you and another person in terms of what you, you hope or want people to get out of this book look i think there's a lot of you know canadians first or second generation canadians even who can really relate to this at a direct level i think also maybe you know for canadians who, who can't relate to this to at least get a better understanding uh, of what that experience is like for for someone who's, who's young and you know coming to canada what so what what is it you want people to get from this I mean, the hope is, you know, if you're not familiar with this experience, then I'm hoping to introduce you to a more complex and more nuanced idea of those identities, of blackness, of Muslimness, of being an immigrant, um, and trying to say, like, those identities are not one thing. Um, they can be really sort of, you know, are your standing your relationship to them can really change depending on who you are. And in some cases, these identities may be thrust upon you in ways that feel unwelcome at a certain period of time. Um, and if you are someone who is just arriving in this country and you're trying to sort out your way through a new land, um, I think I'm trying to say it's okay to take time and formulate 
your own um, version of Canadianness and your own version of belonging through whatever tools you use. I use pop culture. Maybe pop culture is not the way for you. Um, that's totally okay and understandable. Um, but I wanted to sort of share my story to give um, an idea of how somebody else could do it. Right. Well, next Wednesday, uh, it's uh, happening at the Memorial Park Library, uh, an event with you, 75-minute live conversation. You're going to be doing a book signing afterwards, so all the details yeah. on that at wordfest.com. And, you know, you're coming here at an interesting time. This province is a little <laughs> hockey crazy at the moment, just to give you a heads up on that. But can I just note, it's really important to note <laughs> that this WordFest event is happening between yes. games four and five. You know, that's really important. Um, it's not on a night exactly. any game schedule. So listen, important to note. game four happens and then like, we got a, we got a night off, come out to WordFest and let's have some fun. Absolutely. Well, the book is called Son of Elsewhere, a memoir and pieces. Again, Elamine, congrats on the book and uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, man. appreciate it. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud. His uh, book is called Son of Elsewhere, Memoir and Pieces. And uh, you can see him in person next Wednesday, Memorial Park Library. Uh, details at wordfest.com. Well, Jason Kenney is on his way back to Alberta to get set for tomorrow uh, following his appearance in Washington, D.C. today. In fact, he was in Washington, D.C. yesterday and today. And I got to say, it was kind of cool last night. Uh, the premier reached out to a, a fellow who lives in Virginia, also named Jason Kenney, somebody who's often mistaken for Premier Jason Kenney on Twitter. He was invited to an event last night. The two Jason Kenneys posed for a picture together. Uh, that was kind of cool. But the premier was there on business, and, and part of that business was to bring a message to Washington, to U.S. senators, uh, that the United States should be looking north when it comes to its energy needs. And that also takes care of the whole question of energy security. The premier was testifying before the Senate Energy Committee today. This is the committee chaired by Senator Joe Manchin, of course, was just recently here in Alberta. Let me play for you a little bit of what the premier had to say, his opening remarks before the Senate committee today. We were also perplexed with the administration's response to sky-high gas prices was to plead with OPEC to produce and sell more oil while working to lift sanctions on dictatorships like Iran and Venezuela. White House officials have reportedly discussed a presidential visit to Saudi Arabia to press for more production of their oil and their exports to the U.S. Oil that is used to buy cluster bombs dropped on Yemeni civilians. Well, Senators, uh, Calgary is a lot closer to Washington than Riyadh, and you don't need the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet to patrol the Great Lakes. Uh, To quote former Montana Governor uh, Brian Schweitzer, we don't have to send the National Guard into Alberta. Chairman Manchin, we truly appreciated, as I said, your recent visit to Alberta to see firsthand the amazing progress that is being made to reduce emissions and improve the environmental performance of Canada's oil sands to see also the deep partnerships between our energy producers and our indigenous people, and to discuss the development of a North American energy alliance. We invite other members of this committee uh, to visit Alberta and see for yourself, judge for yourself, draw your own conclusions about whether Alberta is a preferable solution uh, of, uh, is pre- preferable to, to, as a source of imports to OPEC. Between current unused capacity in the North American pipeline system and the prospect of pipeline optimization, plus the scheduled completion of the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline to uh, Canada's West Coast next year, Alberta will be able to increase our crude exports to the U.S. by upwards of a million barrels a day over the next couple of years, 
helping to reduce prices at the pump. But with political will from Washington, we could also get another major pipeline built that would forever allow the United States to free itself from imports from hostile regimes. Mr. Chairman, where there is a will, there is a way. The government of Alberta is keen to work with you and, and friends in the United States to get another major pipeline built to achieve the dream of North American energy independence and security. At the same time, we must work together to maintain current supply. And that's why I call on the United States government to join Canada in demanding that the governor of Michigan respect the 1977 Canada-US Pipeline uh, Transit Treaty by abandoning her efforts to decommission the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline that has safely delivered over 600,000 barrels of Canadian energy to the U.S. for six decades. Her plan to do this would only worsen the energy and cost of living crisis at the worst possible time. And we must work on both sides of the border to remove regulatory barriers to the production and shipment of energy. Senators, replacing conflict oil imports with Canadian energy is not a threat to the environment. We take seriously the need to cut emissions to, and to address climate change. Alberta's oil and gas producers uh, and pipeline companies have some of the world's highest ESG rankings. Alberta was the first place in North, North America to implement carbon pricing. Through massive investments in clean tech, we've reduced the carbon footprint of an average barrel of Alberta oil by 36% since the year 2000 uh, to below the global average for heavy oil. Our oil sands producers are committed to achieving net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions in their operations by 2050, in part through a big expansion of our world-leading carbon capture, utilization, and storage infrastructure. We're on track to reduce methane emissions by at least 45%. We're leading Canada right now in renewable energy investments, and we're set to become a global hub in the production of net zero and low-emitting hydrogen. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to your questions and ongoing collaboration on, on developing a North American energy alliance. Okay, so there was the Premier making his case today to the senators on this committee. The Premier used the word perplexed. Maybe he's not alone in trying to make sense of what U.S. energy policy is at the moment. It certainly shifted you know, from a year or a year and a half ago. Well, joining us for some thoughts on that side of it, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, James Coleman, the Robert G. Story Distinguished Faculty Fellow and a Professor of Law with a focus on energy law at the Demon School of Law at Southern Methodist University in Texas. Professor Coleman, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Great to speak with you. All of this comes at a very interesting time. You know, certainly energy needs, energy security, energy prices top of mind. But in terms of where U.S. energy policy is at... How do we sum that up right now? Well, I think it's difficult to sum up because if you look at President Biden's administration's energy policy, it really seems to be both in flux and contradictory at different times. So mm-hmm. he, he is often chastising the oil and gas companies for not producing more. But of course, you know, famously, he has been trying to restrain them as well, both pausing federal leasing for oil and gas several times, mm-hmm. uh, withdrawing you know, potential lease sales, etc. And so it seems that different sides of his administration are sometimes doing contradictory things. And I think it's very unclear how this will all end up. If you ask me what the uh, Democratic Party's energy policy was uh, back in January of 2021, it seems pretty clear that they were looking to restrain oil and gas production. But now it's much more complicated you know, not only do we need, of course, more oil production in the United States if we want to lower global oil prices. Uh, in fact, that's where most of the incremental barrel 
are would come from to lower those prices. Uh, but also, of course, President Biden has promised massive new amounts of natural gas to Europe to help them deal with disruptions as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. So we're really in a lot of flux. I don't think anybody knows, probably including the Biden administration, what its energy policy is going to be going forward. And obviously that makes it you know, a really interesting time to think about ways that the United States and Canada could uh, integrate more and help each other more on energy policy. Yeah, and we look back, you know, when, when uh, President Biden was first sworn in, one of his first acts as president was to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. So that, that project was obviously very symbolic. That decision was meant to send a message or set a tone, I guess, in, in terms of energy policy. If we look back at that decision, do, do you think it's fair to say that, that maybe Keystone XL would have a different context today? I don't know if the president necessarily regrets that, but it feels like maybe the conversation would be different now. Well, you know, it certainly would be very different now. And it may be that the Biden administration realized that was a mistake even at the time. I mean, the reality is often the promise to cancel Keystone XL, it was often described during Democratic debates as kind of table stakes to be a part of the Democratic primary. It was one of those things that whether or not you thought it was a good idea, you kind of had to promise it if you wanted to have the Democratic nomination because of how important it were, was to certain activist groups that were very important in the Democratic Party. You know, I think maybe they regretted it at the time. If they didn't uh, the need to do it, uh, if they didn't at the time, they probably do now. Now, that doesn't, you know, doesn't mean you can necessarily go back and, you know, then you really you've just left everybody mad. So I'm not sure I expect that decision to change. And so far... We haven't seen any indication that it will change. Even if it did change, of course, we don't know how interested TC Energy would be in yeah. you know opening up that can of worms again, especially given the court uh, difficulties we were facing in U.S. courts, even with a favorable administration. Yeah, and I, I think we, we've seen a similar dynamic here in Canada with our federal government because, you know, certainly they've focused on environmental policy, addressing climate change, and and similar to, to the Biden administration. But for now, you know, the reality of the moment, thanks and certainly in part to the situation in, in Ukraine, is that energy prices have soared. Consumers are very sensitive to that. So it almost seems like maybe some of these Climate change priorities are, are taking a backseat. Does, does it feel that way? Well, certainly. It's, it's obviously energy prices and energy security is now top of mind. And the reality is we haven't found a way to make a cleaner and some of our newer energy sources provide the same kind of reliable and affordable energy that we've come to, to expect from our conventional energy sources and, you know, in fact, I mean, this is really underlying this, this problem if you look at the supply chain disruptions, because, you know, despite the bad things about burning oil, the one thing, because it carries so much energy, it is relatively cheap to transport and store. And so for all last year, we were producing only 98 million barrels per day of oil while consuming 100 million barrels per day. So we were using up our stores at a rate of 2 million barrels per day. And we did that all last year. And the result was a doubling of oil prices. Now, if you look at what happened in our cleaner energy sources, like natural gas or electricity markets in Europe and Asia, they would go up five or 10 times. So there's just, there is oil markets are just a lot more secure and stable than some of our newer and cleaner energy sources because it's so much easier to both store for when you'll need it in the future and also uh, to transport to meet local shortages. And so I think this has really put a huge... Um, a huge exclamation point on that need for affordability and security 
And it has really underlined what some of the challenges will be as we try to go to those cleaner energy sources going forward. Now, in the meantime, it seems like the Biden administration's priorities are, are one, I guess, to to replace Russian energy imports to the United States specifically, but also to to add more to global supply to, to try to bring down prices. So t- to that end, you know, there's been a focus on, you know, the potential of, of Iran or Venezuela resuming production, adding more to the global supply. That was something that Alberta's premier certainly touched on today. Like, why is the United States looking to those countries should be looking north? How, how do we reconcile that? Well, certainly it doesn't make very much sense to be asking uh, Iran and Venezuela to increase supplies if we're not going to take advantage of increased supplies in Canada. And that's not just because they're unfriendly regimes, but it's also because if you tried to increase production in Venezuela, their industry has been so damaged by the ongoing crisis, economic and humanitarian, that uh, that has continued there, that it would take years, if not decades, to really increase production significantly. If you look at Iran, of course, not only is it an unfriendly regime, but it even if we were to agree to some kind of new deal with Iran, what we found is that has alienated Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and the result of that has been they're not willing to put more oil on the market. So it's kind of self-defeating as well. By contrast, clearly, uh, Canada is a friendly source of oil production now one of the one of the difficulties there of course is that uh, canadian production and in particular canadian imports to the united states has been one of the focuses of environmental groups looking to restrain fossil fuel infrastructure especially given the strength of those uh, environmental groups and activist groups in both of those countries so it's not it has certainly has challenges but it seems that those uh, you know pale in comparison to the challenges of trying to get more oil from some of these very unfriendly regimes. Now, it's interesting as we look at, at least in the short to medium term here, I mean, it's possible that a combination of, you know, peace in Ukraine and maybe an economic slowdown could change the whole conversation around energy prices significantly. And on the other hand, too, when it comes to U.S. policy, there's midterm elections coming up in November. You know, the Republicans are, are poised to, to maybe really take a grip on on Congress. So that, that could push, you know, energy policy in a certain direction, too. So how unpredictable are, are the coming months around all of this? It's extremely unpredictable because, in part, because we, the Democratic Party really needs to decide what is its energy policy now that things have changed so much in energy policy markets, and now that there is such a focus on uh, price and security, where in which are areas where you know fossil fuels have some advantages, and so, uh, and I think one of the big questions going forward is, is there going to be some kind of reform of our permitting processes that make it easier to build new infrastructure? I think, you know, one area that you're sort of seeing democratic policy move towards a little bit is this idea of, well, we need more more of all kinds of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We need more oil and gas production, sure, to meet the current security needs, but we need to also build all that clean energy infrastructure, new power lines, to support more use of renewable energy, wind and solar in remote regions of the United States, et cetera. And both of those things, fortunately, in a way, are uh, need the same kind of legal reforms in terms of making permitting easier to build the kind of infrastructure that we need to accomplish those goals. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate the insight. Professor Coleman, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. That is James Coleman, energy law expert at the Deadman School of Law, Southern Methodist University in Texas. Not the Deadman School of Law, 
which would be cool. The Deadman School of Law, D-E-D-M-A-N. By the way, and, and Professor Coleman actually previously taught business and law at the University of Calgary before uh, moving on to SMU down there in Texas. Anyway, so some insight on, on where U.S. energy policy is at, and it's kind of hard to pin down. As so often in the history of this country and her people, Canadians have embarked on a journey that demands commitment and courage. My wife and I could hardly be more privileged to travel part of this journey with you. And we are deeply grateful for your warm welcome. Well, that was the voice of Prince Charles. Interestingly, as I'm listening to him and I'm thinking, as recognizable as he is to see him. I don't know if his voice is as instantly recognizable. Uh, but anyway, that indeed does the voice of uh, Canada's future king. Prince Charles and his wife Camilla are here in Canada. Starting today, they begin a three-day visit to our country. Welcome ceremony in St. John's, Newfoundland. They're going to visit Ottawa and the Northwest Territories. Uh, you know, it seems like it would have been an ideal opportunity maybe, uh, you know, for Canada's future king to come see the Battle of Alberta for himself. Either in Calgary or Edmonton uh, in the coming days. But uh, alas... It's not meant to be. And I'm sure, look, you can afford those resale ticket prices, no problem. But look, it comes, it comes at an interesting time. Now, you know, the Queen is, um, what, 96 now? And uh, she's had some health issues, although interestingly, it was great to see the Queen made uh, kind of a surprise public appearance at an event in London today. Uh, but eventually, and perhaps in, in the near future, there is going to be that, that transition uh, from the long-reigning Queen Elizabeth to, to King Charles. Uh, so at this point, I mean, really, from a Canadian perspective, the most relevant, maybe the only relevant monarch is, or a member of the royal family is the monarch. Uh, the queen is the queen of Canada. Everybody else is, uh, in a Canadian context, less important. But Prince Charles is uh, the son of the queen and is uh, first in line uh, to succeed her. How do Canadians feel about that? You know, there's a real deep and warm affection, certainly reflected in polls when it comes to Canadians and the Queen. Uh, she's respected even by those who are not necessarily ardent, ardent monarchs. But the institution, maybe Canadians are, are rethinking, and, and perhaps that transition to Prince Charles might uh, accelerate some of those conversations. And we're joining us uh, for some thoughts on the significance of this royal visit and, and you know, how Canadians are feeling about this institution and our connection to it. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Nathan Tidridge, who's Vice President of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada at Massey College. Nathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. So what is the significance of having uh, the Queen's son, the first in line to the Crown, uh, visiting Canada? Well, I think you said it really well in your introduction. I mean, it's important for him to be here, uh, to, be, uh, to be present in the country. Uh, the Queen famously said she needed to be seen to be believed, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's important for us to see him. He should be out there at the Battle of Alberta yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and present at these events. Um, but unfortunately, um, uh, we don't see him very much, which is probably why his voice isn't as recognizable. Yeah. But it's interesting because, you know, with that distance... Uh, it, it reinforces that perspective, doesn't it? That, you know, these, yeah. are, these are British people. This is a British institution. Yes, but in this country, it's, it's uniquely Canadian. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the institution here is as old as the country, older than the country, actually. 
And then, of course, when you when you enter into discussing treaty relationships, it, it, it's older still. It, it goes back uh, it goes back centuries. Mm-hmm. But um, and the prince himself is actually quite involved in the country through the prince's charities. But as far as touring the country, that's entirely within the purview of the government of the day. Uh, he's not he can't come to the country unless he's invited by the government of Canada. And they're the ones that set his itinerary, uh, as well as the length of time that he's here and what he'll be engaged in when he's here. And so I, I think you raise some really uh, an important question of why don't we see him here that much? Because um, I, I think that that's a critical piece. That's interesting. I mean, the Queen is the Queen of Canada. Uh, yes. She is our head of state. The Prince yeah. of Wales is the Prince of Wales. Like, th- right. there's not a Canadian context at present to Prince Charles, is there? Well, he's the heir to the throne. Yes. So that would be his, his link, and, and which is why his movement in the country, like the, that of the Queen, uh, is, it falls under the, juris- the jurisdiction, really, of the federal government. Mm-hmm. So other than, than being visible and, yep. you know, at least ha- allowing Canadians to, to, to whatever extent, better know this, this individual... What else can a trip like this accomplish? And I know there's some questions when you talk about, you know, crown indigenous relationships, which have certainly been, shall we say, troubled throughout history. Is there an opportunity to, to build some bridges, to, to try to make amends for, for the past? What about some of those issues? Yeah, I mean, that's the crown, because of its age and because of uh, it's been with us since the very beginning, by that nature, it points us to a reflection on the country itself and the and our experiences here on this land uh for the past many centuries and so we're seeing that already in this tour i, I listened to uh, the prince's uh address uh, introductory address and it was it was quite a, a good address and it it it, it touched on uh, many things and and uh, including the you know the, the good and the bad and so it, that's what it does for this country. And I think that's a really important role, especially for a country where we're designed to look forward. We're always looking forward. And we don't, we're not very good at looking where we've come from and, and what sort of things happened in order to get us to this point. And the crown is an institution um, it, that's that's one of its purposes. That's its purposes in ceremony and protocol to to do these things. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the value I think of of what's happening right now. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, most Canadians don't know of a Canada without Queen Elizabeth as the monarch. The vast majority right, of us, yeah. uh, you know, have, have not been alive as long as she has been the queen. And, and there yep. is, as I alluded to, and, and we see that reflected in polls. There's a deep ad- admiration, respect of the queen herself, right? And, yeah. and that's maybe distinct from, from the position. So how does the relationship with the monarchy change once the queen's no longer with us? Well, this is a question that's asked at the beginning uh, or and end of every reign. Uh, yeah. The relationship changes depending on the person who's, who's wearing the crown. Um, I mean, as far as well, popularity polls, it, it doesn't really matter as far as the institution's relationship with Canada. And what I mean by that is the crown itself is it's entrenched in our system. The provinces had it entrenched in 1982. So it's a guarantor of provincial sovereignty, which last time I checked, that's really important uh, for, <laughs> for the provinces, 
within within our federation and then of course there's the there's the treaty connections as well so it's an it's it's really the way in which canada is currently conceived the crown is an indispensable part and so um regardless of the polls the institution itself is quite important and i think the polls would be different if we saw the prince of wales more um that's that's an important piece but of course he can't do that unless he's invited right and i mean but and i don't know if it's overstating it but it almost seems like canadians don't like charles <laughs> like there's a disconnect there there is a disconnect. No, I, I completely agree. Um, I think people should read. I mean, he's got a wonderful book called Harmony that uh, that speaks of his connections through environment. I mean, he was an environmentalist before uh, that was popular um, in this time of uh, you know our changing climate and 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 how our society is dealing with that. He, he critical. Um, uh, a critical individual in that discussion, and he has been for the past. 50 years, I think. So it's unfortunate because I think a large part of our public perception of the Prince of Wales is focused on personal aspects like um, like th- that are featured in the crown, stuff like that, and not his body of work, which is actually quite impressive over the past, you know, six or seven decades uh, that he is, he's been active, six decades that he's certainly been active. Mm-hmm. But I do agree with you, there is a disconnect, and it's unfortunate, and um, I think it could be remedied, um, but uh, it, it, that requires uh, engagement by the government. Yeah, it's interesting because we should distinguish. I mean, the, the position matters, the institution matters, and, and the occupant yeah. is almost secondary. And we, we just went through a debate in this country around rules of succession or could Canada have a different monarch than, than Britain? I think we've largely right. resolved that, but it, it, it is an interesting question, isn't it? Right. And when you think of it, I mean, what really do we know about the personality of the Queen herself? Yeah. We know about her do- diversion to, devotion sorry, to duty and service, but uh, apart from that, we don't really know that much. But Charles, we know. We, we know him quite well because he's been in a position that's allowed him to express his opinions and, and things like that. So it's, it's a different relationship that we have with him than with her. Right. But we're, we're not in a position, are we, where we could just... Uh ourselves as Canada bypass Charles and recognize, say, William as our king. No. If Charles is, is the king of Britain, he's, he's the king of Canada. That's how it's... it's no, no, yeah. The, the succession is automatic. Yeah. It's automatic. And there's also that interesting question, as difficult as it would be for Canada in our constitutional conde- uh, context to end ties with the monarchy, if Britain yep. decided to, <laughs> what would well, become it, of the, the, uh, the Canadian monarch? Well, it, actually, to be honest, the British can, uh, could dissolve, the, could abolish the monarchy easier than Canada could. Right. Because for us, we've entrenched it in the Constitution. If Britain did do that, the, the crown would remain in Canada. Uh, the institution would, would continue on. Well, you know, it's maybe something Canadians don't think about, even if there's a disconnect. That doesn't mean Canadians are, are morphed into passionate Republicans, for example. No. Right? So, I mean, how do you summarize, you know, the prevailing Canadian sentiment at the moment, do you think? I think, really, it reflects our lack of civic literacy in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm calling you from Ontario. I'm a civics teacher, and Ontario is the only province in, in the Federation that has a dedicated civics course that's mandatory for students uh, to take, and we don't do a good job of teaching it in Ontario. 
at least we're teaching it, but it's not being taught well. It's it's a half credit at the grade 10 level. It, it should be higher up in a full credit. And also, um, there's only about four or five provinces right now that mandate Canadian history for a high school diploma. So I think it, it, it kind of reflects that lack of civic literacy and understanding and how our democracy works. Because I find that once people understand it or and realize that, you know, it's at the real root of our democracy, that a different appreciation or at the very least understanding emerges. Very interesting. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Nathan, uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Oh, no problem. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the conversation. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Nathan Tidridge, who's at uh, Massey College at the University of Toronto, and he's uh, vice president at the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada. So, yeah, there, there's there's so much importance that goes with the institution, and we've decided, and we've. It's weird because the debate was really kind of um, not really front and center because it gets into the constitutional weeds but we kind of figured out our own rules of succession how it relates to britons and we're just going to have the same monarch but theoretically uh you know the canadian monarch could be anybody it's not really important who it is it's more about what the crown embodies what it represents how central it is to everything in this country in particular as our guest alluded to uh you know the whole issue of provincial autonomy and in a province where that carries a lot of weight, I think it's important to understand why the crown is so important in that context. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.